I'm the one eight seven seven cars for kids theme song, and I'm not going to sing it because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I'm the Tasmanian Devil's unquenchable appetite for souls. And welcome to Planet of the Meerkats. So we have kind of a special guest today, Eric Levin, who uh, is a friend of mine, lives down the street from me, but has kind of a fantastic resume, decades in the visual effects field. He was the visual effects supervisor on Falcon and the Winter Soldier, obviously yes. one of the big, big time Marvel series that have that's come out in the in recent recent months on Disney Plus. Among other things, he also did Cloverfield, and if you know, you go to his IMDb, he has quite a quite a few credits. Starship Troopers. I know he did the Cosmos series with Neil deGrasse Tyson too, or he did he did some work on that. Yeah. But we recorded this this interview a few days ago and uh, did not do a great job of interviewing Eric. You mean we didn't do a good job of introducing Eric? What did I say? Interviewing? You said interviewing. <laughs> yeah. I think we did a fine job interviewing Eric. <laughs> We're doing a great job on this introduction today, Dave. <laughs> it's like a Sunday. Everyone's chill. Not really in the, the podcast frame of mind. But... Not, not, a, not, not a Sunday. It's a Monday. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Welcome to our blooper reel. <laughs> All right. So with no further ado, here is Eric Levin. We're talking about storytelling and, and how technology and, and just the way the culture is now is changing that. And I immediately thought of you because you've been in the VFX industry now for quite a while and you've seen it change radically in some ways, good, some ways, bad. I thought you might have some really interesting insights. I'll do my best. The first big question is we are like big fans of the Criterion channel. We like to have a running joke that one day they'll sponsor us. But do you have any connections in the industry that you can put us in contact with their people? <laughs> no, sadly. Um, well, here, there's there's a couple of things. One, um, I live in the Bay Area, so I'm like fully removed from the whole movie scene, which is, you know, is good and bad. Uh, bad for you in getting in contact with uh, Criterion. Um, but two, I think if you watch the Criterion collection, you will find very few. You know, most of the movies that I've worked on are terrible and not Criterion collection-y type. I, I mean, like maybe Blade Runner and Metropolis, and that's it for VFX, mm -hmm. right? But uh, they're not they're not throwing the, the Twilight movies hey, the, on Criterion. Yeah. The Rock. The uh, Michael Bay movie w was on Criterion for a while. That is disappointing. So, Eric, what have you been watching lately? I've been thinking about this. Here's the problem. Nothing good, I think. Um, I watched all of Mayor of Easttown, mostly because the dialogue coach from Falcon Winter Soldier called me and said, you got to check this out because they're doing the accent that you told me about from Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did watch that. And we, we liked that a lot. It was it was actually pretty good. I think that, I don't know if you guys have seen it. but um, no. My wife watched it. it it's this detective story, and um, you know, once you throw, once you, it gets very soap opera y toward yeah. the end. And I was trying, like, it starts off great, and they're painting a really cool picture of these characters and these towns. And then it's like, wait, is this 
is this any good? Is this so good? <laughs> and I, I've been wanting to ask other people because I'm not sure if it is. It, it's very, um, but but by, by the time that they get to that point, they've set the world up so nicely and they go to Wawa, which is, you know, it's where I'm from. Yeah. So I know that accent, those towns yeah. very well. So um, so anyway, yeah, we watched Mare of Easttown because of the, the tag team dialogue coach. I watched Raised by Wolves because the tag team director, oh, tag team, by the way, being the code name for Falcon Winter Soldier. Ah. So if you hear me say tag okay. team a lot, that's okay. what that's about. Um, Raised by Wolves, I thought was pretty good, but it also kind of went off the rails at the end. Here's here's the thing. What I have found about myself is that I need to watch I need to watch TV and movies that are um, David Simony miniseries with beginnings, middle and mm-hmm. ends. And and I just you know what I what what used to be interesting to me about like oh the, it's just about the characters in the world and it's very cool and isn't Lost great. And then you know what? No, I need I need to I need, I need to know that you know what you're doing from the very beginning. I need to know you have a plan. And as soon as I sense that you don't have a plan, I can't I can't do it. Are you telling me that they that that they just made the first season of Lost and they were like, this seems pretty cool, and then they just made it up like for the rest of the time? <laughs> what? Um, speaking of Lost, I will say I watched Watchmen, which also by Damon Lindelof. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was amazing. And I thought that unlike yeah. his other stuff, he really did stick the landing on that. And I really yeah. thought that was a really well, great show. I wonder if because they he knew he only wanted to do one season, that it was somehow easier to just tell this cohesive story. When Maybe. when Lost was on, I remember listening to, there was a po- podcast that Damon Lindelof did with Carlton Cuse. They were the showrunners. And mm-hmm. they talked a lot about how the network was forcing them to stretch the show out. And so there was a lot of filler. And then at a certain point, they got the go ahead to like get into their end game. And so they're like, mm-hmm. okay, we know we have two seasons left to tell the rest of the story. And that and then things kind of mm-hmm. clicked in and, and, and the story kind of got a lot more coherent from that point. So you're saying yeah. the end is when it, it started to make sense yeah. and they knew it. <laughs> well, and there's a lot of people that would debate that because the end was kind of off the rails, but uh, yeah. yeah. Are there any recent examples of shows that where you think even like story aside, where you think the the visual work was like super strong? Um, I mean, listen, I'll tell you. Here's what the the movie that it's it's funny. The movie that blew me away the most that I can remember was Master and Commander with uh, with Russell Crowe, and I just remember watching that movie and just thinking. I don't know how they filmed this. I know they weren't on a ship at sea, but the, it just, I can't, I can't believe how realistic this is. It's amazing. The visual effects are incredible and out of this world. And that mm-hmm. was the most recent time. I mean, you know, obviously there have been shows, I mean, I don't know when that movie came out, 10 years ago. More, there mm-hmm. obviously More been stuff that, yeah. since then where it's like, oh, it was, it was really good. And didn't Thanos look real and all that. But, <laughs> but for whatever reason, all of the stuff that I've seen since, um, maybe because the technology is getting so good to a point where it is kind of, you know, it's just amazing, and you can you you really can do anything now. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing nothing sort of impresses me. I, I, people always ask me if I, you know, look at visual effects in, in the weeds, and the answer I was giving them is if it's a good story, then no, I ne- I just get caught up in the story, and I never really pay attention to the to the shots. Mm-hmm. It's when it's a bad movie is when I start noticing. Like, <laughs> oh, I see how they did that. That's, that's not a good shot. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I I mean, I remember you know when I was a kid, Jurassic Park. I remember watching Jurassic Park and thinking like, oh, that is. That is amazing. They really did something new and impressive here they hadn't seen before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Master and Commander, those are the two times that I remember, at least right, you know, the most recent, recent being twenty or thirty years ago. <laughs> like, oh, that, that was that was kind of amazing. So I recently went went back and watched T one and T two or Terminator mm-hmm. and T two, and uh, one I was like curious whether T two held up, 
And it kind of, you know, it kind of does. Yeah. The, oh, I think it does. What, what did you think didn't not hold up? Well, I think, I think, I think the story is great. Like I actually really like the simplicity of the plot and I thought the VFX were really good. I think in my mind, they were like, they were like, am like amazing. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but I could still, <laughs> it still felt like early. I mean, obviously it's like 91, right? So it felt like 91 to me. Yeah. Hmm. Which, which is all I'm saying is that I thought that it would just look perfect. But there's what, what like a seven-year difference between Terminator and Terminator 2. Yeah. And the the graphics were like, it was like it was in a different century. Well, it's, it was like, there's such an amazing jump forward in that short span of time. Well, Terminator used to stop be fair, motion, though, right? And Terminator 2 was almost yeah, all digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it stop motion and Terminator. But to be fair, stop motion was a low-budget indie movie. And Terminator 2 was a, at the time, I think it was one of the biggest budget movies of all yeah. time. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's part of it as well. Um, yeah. I mean, it that's was true. it was a scrappy movie, Terminator. And yeah. to be honest, I think that some of the effects in Terminator, where they have, you know, the, the future scenes and the future war and the spaceships mm -hmm. and the laser guns and the, all that stuff, mm -hmm. that stuff looks impressive given what they had to work mm -hmm. with. I thought that was that's true. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that, that, you know, basically like they did this on a shoestring and then he used abyss to kind of like pioneer a lot of the stuff that they were going to do in t2 mm -hmm. so they had like a proof of concept and they were able to execute it really like take it up a notch in t2 so i mean he way. definitely there those ideas about the liquid metal man that was stuff that he wanted to do mm -hmm. and just you know the technology is not there he's always he's very right. fond of saying i can't make this movie yet because the technology is not there it's just not there yeah. yet. you know he said that about avatar mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about avatar where I, I don't know. I mean, Avatar to me, Avatar is basically a cartoon, you know, in terms of the look of yeah, it. Yeah. Like it's it's a really nice looking cartoon, and so I was just thinking, I don't know why you couldn't have made that earlier. I don't know. Uh, you can you can make anything look like a cartoon. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> well, what, one of the the interesting techniques I think that he used in Terminator Two is uh, when he needed to duplicate Linda Hamilton, he used her twin, and there was a guard. And uh, in the escape from the mental asylum, and he also had a twin that was used. And I thought that, you know, you don't really think about, you, you think about Terminator 2 and being this sort of effects extravaganza, but they were using the low tech stuff as much as they could in order to make it look as real as possible. Yeah, I mean, James Cameron came out of Roger Corman's low budget film stuff. You know, mm -hmm. he used to be, he was a visual effects artist doing models and miniatures for these low, low budget stuff. And so they had to figure out a lot of how do we do this with, you know, bubble gum mm -hmm. and shoelaces. And, and mm -hmm. he's really good at that. He uses rear screen projection when no one else, will, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because, they're, oh, it looks crappy in the contrast. He's like, no, if you do it right, it works great. And mm -hmm. he's still, well, I don't, he, obviously mm -hmm. not in Avatar days, but um, he uses it all the time before that. And I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny. I read something recently about how James Cameron, it's a sad, it's a sad story with him and Avatar because we've basically lost a really great filmmaker. Like he's... He's just going to do this for the rest of his life. He's going to be on 22 sequels and you're just going to, it's all going to be animated. It's all CG and all cartoons and like, okay, well, that's, that was it. Mm -hmm. You know, I rewatched Titanic recently with my daughter and I was really impressed with the visual effects of that. I mean, there were, you could see the seams at some points, but it felt throughout the movie, it all felt very real. Yeah, no, I think he's, he's great at knowing how to play with visual effects. And I think that is something that makes a great filmmaker is, you know, everybody comes into it just uh, in, on tag team action on Falcon Winter Soldier. I had a producer ask me, like, why do we have to blow up a car for real? I mean, can't you just do it in CG? And to just be able to know that, like, yeah, you can do it in CG. It, it absolutely will not look as good. I promise mm -hmm. you. 
Mm -hmm. you do it for real, it will look better. And Cameron is the kind of filmmaker who knows that and will you know, make sure he steers things in the right direction. One of the things that I was really interested in when you were, I don't know if you were supposed to show us any of the behind the scenes stuff from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but you did. And one of the sort of insights that I gained from that was my assumption of what was CG and what wasn't was really challenged, kind of seeing the behind the scenes. It was really fascinating to kind of think about what you can do in real life. And then the budgetary considerations, like what, what can you do and what should you do based on the budget you have? You know, I think there's much more that goes into your job than most people realize. Certainly on a show, on a show like this or any, any big extravaganza. Yes. Um, I think it's, I, I think of Marvel, like the New York Yankees. I don't know anything about sports, but I know <laughs> that the Yankees yeah. are a very expensive team. Yeah. Um, Marvel will just, you know, I don't want to, I don't mean this in a derogatory fashion, but they will throw money at the problem. They mm -hmm. will pay what it takes to make stuff look great. And that opens up avenues that a lot of productions, a lot of films do not have. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, yeah, let's just do it in CG. Let's do everything in CG. Let's make it look great. Let's pay what mm -hmm. it takes to do it right. And I think that's mm -hmm. the issue with a lot of, you know, people talk about visual effects. Now they look terrible and this and that. And the other thing, like, no, not if you pay what it takes to get the mm -hmm. job done. If you, mm -hmm. if you pay what it takes, it's going to look amazing. Um, yeah. Some of the techniques they were using in Infinity War and, and Endgame for Thanos and using, you know, they, they d developed their own machine learning algorithm to come up with the face blend shapes for the model so that it more closely followed um, the performance of the actor. I mean, just like amazing, amazing stuff, you know, really, really cool. I remember that beca only because that was the year that um, First Man won the Oscar for visual effects because they mm -hmm. had model, model spaceships. It was like, <laughs> are you guys crazy? Model spaceships. Yeah, the stuff looked great. But they're doing amazing stuff over here that we've never seen before. <laughs> well, you know? and I think um, I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier was a great example of how a TV show can have the, like the look of and feel of a big VFX blockbuster movie. And I'm thinking specifically of the one of the first action sequences when Falcon is flying around and there's he, like he jumps out of the airplane. And there's all the helicopters and he's like going in and out of the helicopters, uh, and that just looked amazing to me. It looked as good as anything that we're in the movies. And you, you mentioned money. Are there techniques to make that work so well? Or is it really just, you know, you need, need to throw money at processors and algorithms and things? Uh, well, you don't throw the money. You throw the money at Are the artists. Yeah. The <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think that, I mean, not to toot my own horn, I'm really proud of that sequence. Mm -hmm. That was the sequence that we started at the very beginning and finished the very end. And I'm really proud of the way it came out. I think it looks amazing. The team that did the work is fantastic. One of the biggest things that we did was we threw skydivers out of planes. You know, we shot for five days. We shot skydivers. We shot people rodeo riding other skydivers. So they were tandem jumping at the same time and getting all this amazing, amazing footage. And frankly, a lot of it was thrown out. And that is something that, you, that is common at Marvel movies because, you know, you don't get exactly the shot that you want or it doesn't quite do what you want. But now you have this amazing reference, this just wonderful, you know, I, I think that a lot of the visual effects artists make the mistake when they come in and just start from whole cloth. Yeah. And they're like, you know, the problem with com using computer animation in, in general or computers in general is that you, the computer gives you a picture. And so it's very easy for you as an artist to say, oh, that's a great picture. Done. <laughs> mm -hmm. But what you really need to do is say, no, 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 that's not the picture I wanted. When you're painting something from scratch with oil paints, you direct what that painting looks like. Mm -hmm. but the computer does a lot of that work for you. So it's a very easy trap to fall into. And you have to work very, very hard. That's the one thing about working with computers. You've got to work really hard to push the computer where you want it to go, where you want it to go exactly. And so anyway, having mm -hmm. that reference of that skydiving unit was invaluable. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, 
uh, Charlie Tate, who was the visual effects supervisor at Weta, who directed that sequence, having conversations with him. And I, you know, he, talking about cloud formations and what things look like from the air. And I remember I was flying out to Atlanta or I was flying to LA over the desert and I would just take videos with my phone and show it to him. Like, this is what it should look like, you know? That way there's no, everyone's on the same page. Everyone knows what's supposed to be because otherwise it could be anything and, right, and everything. Yeah. And then it starts mm -hmm. to fall into the CG world. Mm -hmm. Well, coming off the, the tales of, of WandaVision, which was also fantastic. I was, you know, it's like, can they can they kind of catch lightning in a bottle twice and have another great show right after that? And that was the moment when I knew I was going to kind of love Falcon and the Winter Soldier because it was such an entertaining sequence. Yeah, it's funny. That sequence was originally supposed to be sort of in the middle of episode one. And then when we mm -hmm. shut down and they sort of reworked the episode, then they were like, you know what? Let's just open the whole show. With yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was a great, great decision. You know, one of the best things that happened to both WandaVision and our show was the pandemic <laughs> because... Mm -hmm. We were both supposed to, we were supposed to air in, I think, July of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't air until, you know, February of 2021. So we had all that extra time to rework the show, shoot new material, work on the mm -hmm. visual effects. I mean, it, it never would have been as good as it was if we didn't have that extra time. I'm curious. So you're kind of touching on this a little bit, but like, what are your internal rules about sort of how you apply visual effects to a story? Yeah, for me, again, it all comes back to reference. And that is, you know, that that's how I was brought up. I, I started at Phil Tippett Studio, mm -hmm. and he is a very sort of, you know, tactile, you know, reference-based supervisor that wants to know what, you know, and, and you've seen all this stuff, right? With, with the Imperial Walkers and Empire Strikes Back, the first thing they did was get a bunch of elephants <laughs> to walk back and forth across the frame, you know? They could have had those walkers walk like anything. They've never, we've never seen them before, but it was really important yeah. to fill to ground that stuff in reality. Mm. Did the same thing in Jurassic Park. He does the same thing on every show. You know, what mm -hmm. What can we look at that, you know, and, and mo most visual effects artists will do the same thing. What can we, what can we base this on in reality? Mm -hmm. Even if we've never seen a flying spaceship, we've seen B-29 bombers that act the same way or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if you stop looking for reality-based stuff, that's when you get into the world of just, you know, make-believe and everything. You, you stop believing mm -hmm. everything. If there's some mm -hmm. way to ground in reality, I think that's what ties it all together. What is your dream visual storytelling project? Oh, golly. Um, you know, it's funny. I, a lot of it was touched upon in, in, uh, in Falcon and Winter Soldier because I, you know, I grew up at a, I did a lot of character-based stuff. So, you know, I've been doing animals and monsters and mm -hmm. things like that. But when I was a kid, that was not necessarily was I typically VFX artists fall into two camps. There's the lasers and spaceships camp and there's the monsters and mummies, camp. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I worked at a facility started by Monsters and Mummies guy, and most of the people there were very Monsters and Mummies based. Mm -hmm. um, but I always wanted to do, you know, as a second year director, he once told me, you want to do something with metal, <laughs> cars and planes and trains and stuff, and that, you know, very visceral, visceral shots and very interesting camera angles and quick cuts and, you know, just keep everybody on the edge of their seat, really cool stuff like that. That's what mm -hmm. I always wanted to do. And we got to do a lot of that in Falcon Winter Soldier. And, um, I, I tell people all the time that the best part about it was there were there were two big helicopter chases in Falcon mm -hmm. Winter Soldier, and I got to use Blue Thunder as a reference, which was <laughs> my it's one of my favorite movies ever. Um, nice. It's just it was just fantastic because that I, I've been showing people that movie for years, <laughs> you know, and taking a lot of taking a lot of heat for it. But I think it's the, the stuff that they did in that movie was just amazing. It's the it was right before the Twilight Zone helicopter accident when they sort of changed all the rules for filming helicopters. 
And I don't know that they put them back in place yet, but I, I think it's the, it's the last time you'll ever see a movie like that ever. You know, they will not make another movie like that, partially because of safety and partially because it, it's, we'll just do it in CG. Why would we ever race helicopters through the canyons of LA? <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're flying through buildings. I mean, this is just the footage is just fantastic. I, I think it's amazing, amazing stuff. So I was constantly <laughs> pointing to the previous team and the visual effects teams and just, you know, no, look at this angle. Look how the camera vibrates very slightly because of the engines in the helicopter. Look how the cameraman can't quite find the helicopters as it races across, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Using that as a reference tool is so much fun. One of the things that I, I've always been fascinated by is you see like you you watch the credits for any big budget show or movie now and the t like there's literally like hundreds of, <laughs> of of effects artists right and like just from like a like a management perspective that is incredibly challenging to manage that many people doing anything but especially something as complicated and complex as creating this visual world just tell me about that. Is that as much of a challenge as achieving the the look that you want? Yes, mostly because there's a lot of moving pieces. And so let me back up. So back in the day, what's really interesting, if you go watch, you know, a big movie from the 80s with a lot of visual effects, mm -hmm. like one of the Return of the Jedi or something like that, there'll be like, you know, 50 visual effects people <laughs> in there. Yeah. You know? And they're but they're doing incredible, incredible work. Stuff that had never been done before mind-blowing amazing you know space battles and things like that and to, to my mind some of that work in jedi is some of the best visual effects that ever mm -hmm. been done you know just like you mm -hmm. just believe what's going on you know what i mean yeah mm -hmm. um and you just i can't believe they only had 80 people on <laughs> or whatever mm -hmm. and it was just it was because they there were a lot of jack of all trades mm -hmm. people who mm -hmm. could do everything people who could build models and paint them and like mm -hmm. them you know and people who could build molds and sculpt and animate you know or whatever mm -hmm. And now it's very, very, the processes are very, very narrow. You know, the mm -hmm. artists focus on one little thing most of the time. Part of that is because there's so many moving parts and so many shots in a movie. You know, a big movie has 3,000 shots. I don't know how many Jedi have, but it was probably 800 or something like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So there's just, the amount, of, the amount of work is multiplied to the point where you just, you just need a little bit more of an assembly line thing. And because it's an assembly line, you do have, you know, this has to happen before this can happen, before that can happen, before that can happen. It was challenging when everybody started in that CG world. And it was interesting because you had a lot of people coming from the more traditional VFX world who were suddenly thrown into this computer factory. And then it was like, oh my God, how do we, well, we have to set up all these new processes and blah, blah, blah. But that was, you know, now you're talking, that was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Most of the big visual effects companies have figured mm -hmm. that out. And mm -hmm. now we're in a world, this started relatively recently, last five or 10 years. Now you have subcontractors that only do part B of the process. Mm -hmm. So you offshore them, that to mm -hmm. them, you don't even have to think about it. It just, you know, it's a little mm -hmm. box that, you know, stuff goes mm -hmm. out and then it comes back and it's done. So mm -hmm. most, most everyone has kind of figured out the pipeline at this point, um, gotcha. which is good because it does allow you to focus on more of the creative <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because most of these movies are like, well, okay, we want to see this thing that we've never seen before. How do we do that? Mm -hmm. So it, it's good that we can focus on that and not have to worry about, oh, there's 900 shots that all have to be match moved you know, in this uh, forest environment, <laughs> which is gonna be really tricky. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. Someone's gonna figure that out. It's okay. Yeah. It also nice. makes my job easier <laughs> as, a, as a, the effects supervisor. Whenever a director talks about, you know, I want to do this or I want to do that, there, I mean, there's there's very little that you can't do as long as the money and time are there. It's like, yeah, well, we can do that. We'll figure it out. You want, mm -hmm. oh, you know, what? we'll just replace this whole thing in CG. We'll take care of it. It's no, not a big deal. Oh, you didn't, you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> funny story. So in the, in the early days. You know, there was so much data that had to be collected on set lighting reference and, you know, survey and LIDAR and texture photography and all of the stuff. And if you did not have that stuff, 
there was no way to get this shot done in visual effects. Yeah. It was going to be a mess. It was not going to work. It was not going to look good. And these days, obviously, you still want everything you can possibly get. But very frequently, it's just like, yeah, we want to replace this thing. And we didn't know we were going to replace it. So you have to just kind of figure it out. <laughs> and, and everybody figures it out. And there's, it's never a situation. Where no one ever comes back and says, you know what? We tried it. We can't yeah. do it. Which is interesting because a lot of times, you know, the, the visual effects artists are constantly complaining that, you know, they're always pushing us for more and faster. And, but that's because you guys keep doing it. You keep delivering. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody keeps delivering. So we're just going to. They haven't learned that the be the best job or the best person to be at a company is the person who is uh, pretty incompetent, but not incompetent enough to get fired. <laughs> just, you, know, you don't you don't want more work coming across your desk, so you got to yeah. fail a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to address um, the elephant in the room, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit in this, but uh, the big Falcon and the Winter Soldier controversy. Batrock the Leaper should he have done more leaping? Do you agree or disagree? Excellent <laughs> <Next laughs> question. I'm taking this question literally. If sure. Okay. Um, there was a stunt performer that we had. I can't remember his name. It was Dave something. And he was just, you know, just you just watch this guy. And he's just the most amazing athlete. And you're watching his body do things that no human should be able to do. And he's like, oh, I'll do it again. Take three. Yeah. No problem. Just incredible. <laughs> hey, long story short, Dave was not available. What was your first gig in the, in the industry? And is it on streaming? Uh, well, my first gig was, my first movie was Starship Troopers. Oh. Um Okay. My okay. my first my first job was at a small production company in Philadelphia doing commercials and industrials, and I got that job because when I was in college, they were the, the computer animation stuff was just starting and it was very interesting to me. And so I was playing around with some of the software. I made a little animated film, like a two minute animated film, which is available on <laughs> YouTube. Um, that uh, one of the people who worked at this company in Philly saw. And I remember very clearly I was coming, it was, I was back for spring from spring break, my senior year. And that's when everything kind of washed over me as a film student. Like I have no chance of getting a job. Like I am, I'm doomed. I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move to LA and carry cables around. I am screwed. <laughs> and I remember I got a phone call at nine in the morning on like a Monday morning. And they're like, Hey, this is so-and-so from this company in Philadelphia. And we'd like to offer you a job blah, 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 blah. And you know, I'm a senior in college and I was not awake and I, told it like i'm not awake right now can you call back and i hung up the phone <laughs> and didn't get their phone number didn't didn't get anything it was a miracle that they called back but they called back they they, they saw my they saw my film and they hired me on the basis of that so that and that's really where i learned to do computer animation mm -hmm. you know fancy computer stuff on sgi computers that the industry was using at the time and then i was there for about a year and a half and i you know i'd always wanted to go out to la and work on the big the big visual effects companies and I was getting my reel together and sending it out and um, nobody would call me back. And then I was out in LA visiting a friend mm -hmm. and this, this will date me slightly, but I, I literally went through the yellow pages. <laughs> I went through the phone book for visual effects companies and called them one at a time. And there weren't yeah. that many, you know, there, 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 there were that many, but I, I called them one at a time. And most of the time I got a receptionist like, hi, my name is Eric and I really want to work in this field. And what do I do and how do I do it? And like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'll talk to you later. But one of the companies, uh, no longer around, called Boss Film, um, they put me in touch with their HR manager, this woman named Michelle. And she was very nice. And she talked to me. Here's how the industry works. This is the way I get into it. This is where you do this. Blah, 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 blah. And then she, at the end of the call, she said, hey, you know, there's this company up in Berkeley. You should give them a call because they're hiring right now. I called to follow up at this company in Berkeley. And they said, oh, how did you find out about us? I said, oh, Michelle at Boss Films told me about you. And they said, mm -hmm. oh, Michelle told? We'll put your resume <laughs> right on top. 
Nice. Nice. Well, and Starship Troopers, I went back and rewatched that a couple years ago. That movie looks way better than it has any right to. Like, that is like a really good looking movie. It looks great. The work looks amazing. I mean, we lost to Titanic that year because it's all a popularity contest, yeah. but I think the VFX in that movie really stands the test of time. <laughs> well, I mean, watching guys um, get like ripped in half and it looks totally real to a degree that yeah. like it looks better than a lot of the stuff that it's still coming out now. I think part of that was we did that show. We, we did just the bugs. Sony did the spaceships. We did the bugs. We had about 220 shots and we did it over the course of 14 months. And these days you'll do 220 shots in, I don't know, 12 weeks. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and oh, I think, wow. I yeah. think that's really what it was is that troopers was, you know, tr uh, there was, there was Jurassic park in 93. And then there were just, there was like a rush of just like, let's do whatever we can with CG. Cause this is amazing thing. But really, Trooper started in 96, so very soon after Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. uh, we were still using some of the same, um, the DID, you know, the the, um, the stop motion animated doobobs that they created mm -hmm. for Jurassic Park. We were still using mm -hmm. some of that. So it was very, very early, and we were figuring everything out. And they just told us, because the studio had no idea what it would take to do this. So mm -hmm. we said, well, based on what happened for Jurassic Park, we need this much time and this much money. And they gave it to wow. us. Mm -hmm. And having that time to really refine everything and really lots of tests and, you know, lots of, and, and again, being on set and capturing all the data you could possibly need. Yeah. I think that film looks really yeah. good. You're a voter for the Academy, for the Academy Awards every year in VFX. And so you're well aware that it's a, a popularity contest, but um, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what, what's, uh, what do you, what, what's looking good this year? Like, I know it's very early. It is really early. You know, I don't know. Most of the blockbusters haven't come out yet. They're just true, starting to right? come out, right? Yeah, so you're yeah. going to have you're going to have your Fast and Furious. You're going to have your your Marvel movie. I think there's three Marvel movies what coming else? out this year. Is yeah. that right? There's Black Widow, Black, Black Widow, like something else. Yeah. Oh, the Eternals. Yeah. 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 Um, Marvel typically does not win uh, the Visual Effects Award. Hmm. And hmm. I don't know why that is. I, I would guess I would hazard that it is there. Are, listen, I love the guys in the Academy. There are a lot of old people in the Academy. And mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, they love their models and their miniatures. Mm -hmm. And if you can show you use a lot of models and miniatures, they kind of really fall in love with it. Yeah. Marvel, zero models and miniatures. You know, <laughs> it's all, all, all CG. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, there is something sexy about the models and miniatures where they and, and the virtual production, too. They love virtual production uh, because then there's a dolly grip moving the dolly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. not just ones and zeros. I mean, if you remember the old Cinefix articles where you know, in the 80s, those the photos in those magazines were amazing because they had all look at how they're hanging this model and they have this <laughs> giant computer controlled camera. And it's yeah. just like all of these technicians doing all this amazing stuff. And then flash forward to the 90s and the aughts. It's like a guy pointing at us. <laughs> How'd you do that? It was done in CG. How'd you do that? It was done in CG. You know, I mean, I, I, I point back to um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where they had the mine car mm -hmm. chase. Mm -hmm. And how did they film that? Oh, well, they built this whole miniature thing. Then they took a, an SLR camera, which uses film in the same format as VistaVision. And they basically just like hacked that camera so they could run movie film through it. And they put this little SLR, you know, <laughs> Nikon on this little roller coaster in miniature. It's like, that's awesome. Yeah. How'd you do Thanos <laughs> CG? <laughs> so VFX needs its own version of storytelling about itself in order to get the respect yeah. from the academy is really what it you need to add some vfx into the conversations with vfx artists yeah <laughs> what is interesting what you're what you're seeing now is the studios are on this tear where they don't want to talk about cg vfx or they mm -hmm. want to they only want to talk about practical effects do you know when we built the new star wars movie we built a real millennium falcon <laughs> 
Yeah, when it's sat on the ground, but when it's flying all over the space and doing all the cool stuff, it's CG. But they go out of their way. Do you know in Fast and Furious that they really did all those stunts? Mad Max was the best example, right? Uh, Fury Road. Mm -hmm. Great, Mm -hmm. great stunts. Amazing stuff. Not to detract from any of that stuff, but easily half of those it was all augmented with cg yeah. every single yeah. shot you know i mean yeah. nothing nothing is totally practical but the studios are really right now the thing you know in the 90s all they talked about was how they did everything with computers now it's the pendulum has swung the other way and all they talk about is how they're doing everything practically mm-hmm. mission impossible he does all his own stunts blah 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 eh, you know they're doing a lot of cg <laughs> so this is a good time to i think just pick your brain about where, where do you see like TV and cinema going from a storytelling perspective, like what what is the future entail for this? You know, it's interesting. So <clears throat> I, I can tell you where it's going to go technically. technically. Mm-hmm. Storytelling wise, I was just thinking about this the other day. I think I was reading an article about the old Superman movie from 78. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because the Falcon Winter Soldier, the opening scene, for example, with the skydivers, like you, you could not have done that. 10 years ago, 20 years mm-hmm. ago, just, you, you couldn't have done it. It was, it's only possible because of the technology that we now have. So that's a storytelling beat that you would have n- never seen before, except that they also kind of did this in the James Bond movie where he jumps out of a plane and steals the guy's parachute, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. storytelling wise. Oh, so that brings me back to the, the Superman thing. Superman, when he's chasing the rockets, he's flying through canyons mm-hmm. and he's got to grab that rocket and send it off into space before it blows up the world and everything. So storytelling-wise, I feel like it's the same story. It's just, you know, it was very limited in what they could actually mm-hmm. shoot. Yeah. So, but I don't think that makes our scene necessarily better. Um, so it is interesting. I, I don't know storytelling-wise if, you know, I, I don't know. You know, again, Cameron will talk about how Avatar could not have been done without blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that that's true. I, you know, Lord of the Rings, when it came out, it used technique, techniques, technologies that absolutely were invented for that movie and had never been done before, except that Ralph Bakshi did a version of, you know, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. It was like half rotoscope, half animation. So storytelling wise, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get all new stories that you've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I could be totally wrong. It, mm-hmm. It's certainly possible. You know, um, Benjamin Button mm-hmm. is a story that would not have been doable or, well, Actually, that's not true. You could have done it with makeup, right? But maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been believable. It wouldn't have looked as good. And no studio would want to take a chance on that. So, yeah, I don't know. How, how do you feel about the ethical dilemmas of digitally inserting dead actors into movies? I mean, uh, Star Wars has been doing it a lot um, with Carrie Fisher and um, the guy who played Tarkin, Peter Cushing. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's silly. I think that, um, what was the... What was the deal? There was a there was a there was another character, and so I remember tweeting about this. It was like my one tweet for the year. <laughs> um, there was there was another character in in Star Wars, maybe in, maybe actually in Rogue One, where they just they just recast her. They needed a younger version of the actor from Return of the Jedi, and they just recast yeah. her. It's like, mm-hmm. well, just just do that for Tarkin. Yeah. You know, like what's is anybody really? You know, and I and then maybe maybe if the guy if the CG was totally believable, mm-hmm. if it mm-hmm. if it took your breath away, or rather if it didn't take your breath away, and it just completely you completely believed it was a real person. Yeah. Maybe it's worth doing, but that's all anyone talked about is how CG he was, how good mm-hmm. the CG was, how bad the CG was. When when Luke Skywalker showed up in The Mandalorian, you know, it's like, wasn't that neat how CG he was? Didn't they do a good job on the CG? Well, it's like, as soon as you say that, you're right out of the <laughs> Yeah. You know, you, you know what I mean? So I, I think it's a silly idea, mostly because um, all you're focusing on is the, is the technique and not the storytelling, you know? Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. old boss used to say, why would you... Why, why would you, what was this saying? 
why would I pay 10 stupid animators when I could just pay one stupid? <laughs> <laughs> what, what tricks do you use to avoid the uncanny valley when you're doing VFX? You know, I don't have a lot of experience with that kind of stuff. We, the, the closest I've come is having to make a bunch of CG wolves. Mm. I think that the best trick is to stay away from it. I think that, you know, I've never had to do a completely believable human. I think if you watch Avatar, Avatar is very smart. Again, James Cameron is a very smart filmmaker. There's a reason that their eyes are this big and that their ears are giant and that their mm -hmm. faces, everything's a bit of a, um, a caricature. Mm -hmm. You stay away from the valley as much as possible. You don't go into yeah. it whenever you mm -hmm. can. How are like neural networks and machine learning and, and sort of what you're start, starting to see with deepfake te technology, how is that going to impact this? And I know that's a little bit of a different thing because you see... <laughs> You see, like on on Instagram uh, or on Twitter, or whatever. Like there are all these like Tom Cruise deep fakes that seem to be coming out, where they they put his face on some other person, and it's a different thing. But like they're getting more and more believable. I think it's amazing, frankly. I think that the the, the thing that I saw that was the most impressive was the Henry Cavill mustache removal thing. I don't know if you guys <laughs> yes. have seen that. I haven't seen that now. So they they basically they, because the, you know some guy who's good with deepfakes basically said look I'm going to take the footage with the mustache I'm going to remove it using deepfake it's going to take me one artist a day using a four hundred dollar computer mm -hmm. whereas you guys spent millions of dollars and mine's yeah. going to look yeah. better you know yeah and his did look better but but the reason you don't see that just yet is because the deepfake stuff works until it doesn't and mm -hmm. everyone's really concerned about edge cases because if you go down this rabbit hole with the machine learning where you it's this weird black box you're not quite sure how it works. Once it breaks, you know, if he turns his head profile and something's wrong with the nose, oh God, yeah. how do we fix it? I don't know. It's machine learning. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. So, so I think everybody, everybody, you know, now that the, the technology has sort of stabilized a bit, uh, it's a little bit more mature. Everybody wants to go with what they know because they want to make sure that it's going to work. Whether or not that stuff becomes magical and just kind of works all the time, I don't know. But but if it does, what'll be great about it is that it'll just be. I mean, what we do right now is so much of a headache. And, you know, the, the amount of detail that artists have to paint, they're painting literal pores on these CG characters. Mm -hmm. And then it, it only works in this lighting. For that lighting, you have to change this. And they go in. It's just it's so time consuming. And there's so much attention to detail. And if you could let a computer do all that, I mean, that'd be a fantastic. And that would be, you know, again, you're, that's not going to change the story because it's still the story is going to be the same, but to allow the artist not to have to work so hard, allow the, um, or it's just, it's not going to take so long. It's not going to be so expensive. The producers are going to be able to change their mind on stuff uh, later and later. That's the name of the game for the producers, right? They want to change their mind as late as possible. So back in the day when you were doing visual effects, you know, okay, there's this spaceship and it's going to fly at us and it's going to bank to the right. And everyone's cool with that, right? Yep. Yep. That's what it is. So you build the spaceship, you program the move, you shoot it. That's on film. That's it. And then three months later, well, I, I wanted to bank to the left now. Well, that's a whole big deal. Are you sure you want Because that's a huge, huge, huge deal. But now they want to change the direction of the spaceship. No problem. CG, we can just, you know, we can, you know, we can do that up to 24 hours before the release of the movie. Right. And but 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 they want to do it five minutes before the release of the movie. So mm -hmm. the more they can change the, the later because it doesn't take as long to reproduce. That's an advantageous to the producers. And mm -hmm. obviously it's not going to cost as much because you're not going to have an army of people painting pores, you know. So you also worked on Cloverfield, which mm -hmm. is uh, one of my daughter's favorite movies. Uh, and she loves oh. she loves the found footage sort of handheld camera look. And I think that movie is a great example of how visual effects were really used to do a lot of suggesting of things that are happening. The girl blows up, but it's behind a curtain 
or you know the monsters like way far in the background and and you're kind of watching all the edges of the screen how is it an experience of working on a movie that has a handheld camera action different from something like falcon and the winter soldier where the camera's fixed or it's on a very set trajectory i, I it's actually not too much different it was filmed in there were similar methods for filming it. Um, the, the biggest difference was that sometimes they would let the actor actually hold the camera. <laughs> um, the, the guy that played HUD, I can't remember his name, but he would he would actually hold the camera sometimes and do a lot of that. But most of it, there was an actual operator doing the mm. filming. Um, so it wasn't too much different. It wasn't really different in terms of what we had to do VFX-wise. What was nice about that show, which I thought was great, was they really planned a lot of it in advance. Mm. There was no screwing around. It was like they, they pre-visited it this is what we want to do. And then they did exactly that. And we put the VFX in and it worked yeah. really well. And I mean, what's amazing about that movie to me is if you, all credit to Matt Reeves, the mm -hmm. director, if you watched, that was really, it wasn't the first found footage movie, but I think it was the first sort of, it was definitely the first found footage with big VFX mm -hmm. in it. All, all the found footage movies that came after that, like uh, Chronicle and they, they all use the same language. Yeah. They all use the same techniques and the same, we have to put the camera down for a second and because we need to cut, but we can't cut. But, you know, or, or, or having the actors say out loud, like, why are we filming this? You know, it, it, but it was interesting to see how much of that vocabulary was invented by Matt for Cloverfield. We've been watching the Paranormal Activity movies, which sort of um, moved off in that vein. And the way that they've, I think, tried to move beyond that has been interesting. There's a scene in one of the later movies where the, the laptop camera won't shut off. And so that's the excuse for the laptop camera always being on. So you get to see what's happening in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a scene in Chronicle where they're, um, you know, oh, I was just making this movie. Hang on. Let me put my camera down. But I forgot. to pause it. it just has to be pointed. It just has to be pointed at us. Um, I think what was also great about Cloverfield is, you know, they had a very, it was $25 million for the whole wow. movie, the entire, the entire, yeah, the whole budget. So um, they, by necessity, they had to, shoot stuff off screen and plan stuff. And they just leaned into, these are the limitations we have. How can we make that movie work? Again, going back to some of the stuff that James Cameron had to do, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have infinite resources. So how can we cut corners and make things as cool as we possibly can? I'm kind of a big believer that that's, that makes your storytelling stronger. And I think one of the reasons why we have a lot of these older movies, which stick with us and have such a lasting impact is that, they were created from that place, you know, of limited resources. People had to get creative. The stories were simpler and in the end, maybe more better executed. Right. So it's kind of like now if you can do anything, you know, you can do anything and you, you can do it, you know, change anything. yeah. And you can, yeah. you can, if you, if, well, I'll just do it 15 different ways. It, it's sort of like yeah. when videotape first came mm -hmm. out, like when you were shooting film, you had it was expensive to shoot film so you had to know what you were doing and you would get it and it sort of made everybody on the set kind of let's focus because we're rolling film yeah. now and now it's video it's like yeah whatever we'll do 100 takes no big deal constraints can be a great thing to just focus your creativity absolutely yeah. so i'm sure we're going to have a lot of people that tune into the podcast who are interested in getting into the visual effects field what advice would you have for somebody who might be in college and looking to get into that field like what what would they what should they focus on what skills should they build well so it's funny because back in the day what we used to say was you can teach an artist to use a computer but you can't teach a computer person to be an artist <laughs> mm -hmm. which is which is to say make sure you're studying photography and fine mm -hmm. art and filmmaking and painting and you know all of those fields and engineering all, all that kind of stuff so you can bring all that stuff to mm -hmm. 
to the computer animation that you, like I was saying before, in terms of, you know, don't let the computer tell you what it needs to look like. You as an artist need to tell a computer what it's going to look like. Um, that was what we used to say. And that was really good advice. And, and now I'm not sure that's the best advice because a lot of times, uh, people don't care if you have a fine art degree, mm-hmm. you know, they just want you to know they, you need to know this software. You need to not get now because we have 10,000 shots that are coming out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is helpful to know about how, how, uh, computer animation works. It's helpful to know some of the, if not literally the software that we use, at least some similar software. Um, mm-hmm. There are lots of free software out there that work, you know, um, being able to sometimes specialize, you know, the, the CG world usually breaks into the two dimensional and three dimensional mm-hmm. uh, parts of the pipeline. And so it's helpful to know which you prefer mm-hmm. because you're only going to get to do one. Um, that, that said, I think it's great when you have people who really know a lot of different things. Um, they'll, you'll, you'll find a way to make it work if you're really interested. So it's still a jack of all trades. It's just different trades than it used to be. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's it's I mean, I worked with a guy who designed the not only he did he design the DID, you know, the you guys know what the DID is? The yeah. uh, you know, so in in Jurassic World, this is a great story actually. And oh, and I just learned a, a juicy new tidbit about it just the <laughs> other day. So, you get your you get your Jurassic Park movie. Um, they're going to make it with GoMo animation, but essentially stop motion animation, right? Phil Tippett mm-hmm. Company is going to do it all. He has a team of the world's greatest stop motion animators ready to go. These people know everything about how creatures move. Mm-hmm. They're the best in the, in the business and they're going to do it. Meanwhile, um, there are a couple scenes where they have like herds of dinosaurs. And obviously you can't do that in stop motion. It's too time consuming. You can't do it. They're going to do that in CG, this, this new nascent CG. They're going to do like these background dinosaurs that are running in herds. Mm-hmm. No big mm-hmm. deal. You do that stuff. Well, those CG guys... They think they can do the whole thing in CG. So they are, they've got this whole Skunk Works project where they're designing everything to be done in CG. They show a test of a Tyrannosaurus Rex walking around to Steven Spielberg, and his mind is blown. He's like, that's how we're going to do it. This is the way to do it. This is the future right here. And it is. Meanwhile, Phil Tippett and his gang of stop-motion animators, Phil actually utters the words, I feel like I'm extinct, which then makes it into the movie. Um, <laughs> but but Phil, Phil just watched his entire career vanish his skill set is no longer needed it's like being a portrait artist and then having a, a camera with, with film come out just like oh mm-hmm. don't need you anymore thanks wow. so he anyway but but then what they found out was that you had all this amazing technology but not necessarily the artistry or you know a lot of these computer guys the only thing they had animated were flying logos you know for the movie of the mm-hmm. week they didn't know how to make a dinosaur believable so we're tr- we've got these amazing animators on one side who don't know how to do computers. We've got these amazing computer people who don't know how to animate. What do we do? So what they invented was this. It was called the dinosaur input device. <laughs> it was basically a it was a stop motion puppet about the size of a dinosaur stop motion puppet, but instead of covered in you know foam latex and looking like a dinosaur, well, they put little encoders at every joint, and then these encoders, as you as you pose the dinosaur's mouth, right as it opens, mm-hmm. that sends a signal to the computer where you have an identical dinosaur model. And now you're basically, you're, it's like motion capture. It's essentially early mm-hmm. motion capture. Mm-hmm. You're able to move this puppet the way you've moved puppets for your entire career, but now it can go into the computer and you can render it in a little photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a way to bridge all this stuff. The juicy story was that I just found out, you know, if you, that, that story is everywhere. It's this amazing bridge mm-hmm. between technology. It's a way to get the artists together. It was like the most amazing thing ever. I just read a tweet, a tweet. Oh, that's what it is. They're always, it's the 30th anniversary of this and that. So they're always posting articles about, you know, here's the retrospective of the DID. It's starring, you know, these people. And this is what it is. And it's amazing. And um, 
just recently, someone tw- someone had a tweet about like, here's the, read my article about the retrospective on the DID. And then one of the animators from ILM was basically saying like, yeah, the yeah, I didn't work. We replaced all, we didn't use it. All. Oh. It was all crap. Oh man. It was, I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> and it was sort of like, hey, what are you talking about, bro? Like that, I don't, So anyway, my point is that the guy who invented that, the guy that helped invent the DID, one of one of the, the people, he didn't do it by himself, but one of the architects of the DID, also was the guy that came up with in Robocop, um, they needed to have muzzle flashes, you know, the, the bright mm-hmm. gunfire mm-hmm. when, when Ed 209 was shooting. Well, how do you do that in stop motion? That had never been done before. They never had muzzle flashes before. Yeah. So this guy just figured out, well, we're gonna ha- we're gonna put some strobes from a little camera and they'll be computer controlled and we'll put little bits of cotton. And so and what we'll do is we'll animate the robot and then we'll backwind the film. And then we'll, on top of that, we'll double expose this bits of cotton illuminated by, you know, flash photography so we don't have to composite. It was just like, this guy is amazing. He knows so much about so much. Um, and then he learned the, the CG stuff. Um, he's constantly learning stuff. So so I guess, yeah, and it's, it's frustrating now that it's like, well, you, I just need you to match move this scene. So please learn this match moving software and, and match move it. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, it, so for people who... For people who need to get in the industry, yeah, it's it's nice that you know how to build DIDs and do muzzle flashes on stop motion puppets, but we still need to learn the software mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And there are twenty other guys who know it who know it. So yeah. if you don't know it, you know. What software is it? Are you doing Maya? What are you using? Yeah, most places use Maya for animation. Um, they use uh, they use Nuke for compositing. And they use Katana for sort of a bridge between your animation and your renderer. Your renderer is usually RenderMan, sometimes Arnold. Um, so th- th- that's what most of the big facilities use. And then sometimes there's some proprietary stuff on top of that. Um, oh, and then uh, Houdini for effects. Those are the, those are the big four. What kind of inputs do you um, use for those? Is it just keyboard and mouse? Or do you have like special rigs to uh, actually move things with your hands? I have only seen keyboard and mouse. Um, I think I know there are people experimenting with sculpting, you know, who actually rather than paint on a Wacom tablet, they're actually painting with a, mm-hmm. you know, a headset and actually painting mm-hmm. in midair and sculpting in midair and stuff like that. I, I, you don't see, I haven't seen that in the shops too much. That's usually like a little bit more bleeding edge type mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you save that for more of the virtual production stuff or, you know, the, the you know, the R&D facilities, the ILM, things like that. They'll have that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's mostly keyboard. Is there mouse. anything on the horizon that's going to threaten the computer VFX industry, the way that the computer VFX threatened stop motion? Well, the, the virtual production thing, uh, I mean, it's still going to be computers, mm-hmm. you know, it's just going to be a different type of computers. I think that the, the real time stuff, the unity engine, you know, the game engine stuff that they use them. Do you guys know about that? How that works with the Mandalorian and all that, that that's no. the big new, that's the hot stuff. So basically right now, if I want to, if, if I want to put a monster behind me, I need to shoot me on a green screen. Oh, I know what you're talking and about. I take the green yeah. screen and I yeah. So so the Mandalorian stuff is like, no, no, no. Now we're gonna make the monster ahead of time and we're gonna film you and the monster. It's basically it's rear screen photography. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's so funny. It's it's the technique that was invented in 1920 mm-hmm. and has been around mm-hmm. forever that people poo-pooed James Cameron for using in Terminator 2 because they didn't think it looked very good. It's literally rear screen photography, except now you can move the camera because mm-hmm. you know. Back in the day, you had to keep the camera locked off because obviously your background wasn't going to move in relation to the camera. Now mm-hmm. it does because now mm-hmm. instead of photography you've already filmed, it's all CG models and stuff, and you can light it however you want. You can move it however you want. The dirty little secret is it it's just not there yet. I was watching The Mandalorian, and um, the, Mandal- the look of The Mandalorian to me is always – it's very flat. 
and very low contrast, mm -hmm. and I'm just not a huge fan of it. Except I saw one episode that looked really good. They were out, and there was this big stormtrooper battle, and they were in this in this this canyon outside in the bright blue skies. I was like, wow, that looked really good. And I asked a buddy of mine, he's like, oh, yeah, we shot all that on location. We didn't do that <laughs> and that's because the screens aren't really, they're not very bright. Yeah. Um, you can't quite get, you obviously can't get the same contrast ratio as you can in sunlight. So, um, but yeah, that that's the dream. Because now if you can mm. do everything in real time, you can change everything at the last second. Um, you know, so, the, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like notice the contrast issues, but I watched on my iPad. So I wonder if like, my experience of watching like VFX heavy stuff is impacted because I'm always watching on a really small screen versus watching on, you know, uh, a 59 inch TV or whatever. Yeah. I think that that, I mean, I, I feel like that is less about the look of an image than it is about uh, the, the editing. In mm -hmm. fact, speaking of, speaking of the rock, I, I remember watching the rock on a big giant screen and there were a couple of scenes that were just unintelligible. I was like, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. I'm out. I'm <laughs> like there was a chase scene in San Francisco with a car yeah. chase. And that was one of the first movies that where they were editing on the Avid. So it used to be what you would do is you would edit in a moviola or a cam. You'd have a little screen like this. Mm -hmm. And then, but you'd constantly then take your footage and watch it in the big theater because you wanted to see how it played on the big screen. Yeah. And then when they switched to Avids, it's like, oh, well, now we don't have these little screens anymore. We have these, you know, fairly big monitors. We can just watch it on the monitor. But it's still small compared to the movie screen. Yeah. So they're making editorial adjustments on these small screens. And then when you get to the big screen where everything is wrapped around yeah. you, oh, my God, it's just totally overwhelming. Um, yeah. So now what, mo what most edit, when you go into a modern editing suite, the editor has a couple of monitors and then there's one giant TV yeah. that everybody mm -hmm. watches. I mean, there's so many unintelligible movies. I mean, the Michael Bay Transformers, I think, are the sort of like the, the bell. <laughs> the, yeah. The bell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I remember I, I was not a fan of the Bourne movies, the car chases. I just thought they were mm -hmm. just mushy. And then yeah. I saw a lecture by Dennis Murin, who's one of the preeminent visual effects artists of our generation or of two generations now. Um, and he was saying how much he liked them. And he was saying mm -hmm. that if you watch the way they're edited, they're actually really smart. And they, they, they put important things in parts of the frame so that your eyes don't have to travel very far. And so it was, it was mm -hmm. interesting to hear about that. But I think that they did that much better in the Mad Max movie in Fury Road, where you watch mm -hmm. these scenes that have just, you know, cuts every eight or 12 frames. But they're completely watchable. They're completely, yeah. they make sense because they are leading your eye in the right, in the right place and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So uh, to close this out, how do you smash a flag? <laughs> it, did you get any insight into that? Like, thing? Working on the show. See, here, here's the thing, guys. I, I've just spent two years on this Marvel show, and there's no, there's no messing around with the Marvel stuff. Like, there's no making fun of anything because they're all deadly serious about everything, and everything has a point. And there's no, come on, guys. It's a silly guy who wears a suit of armor and fights for truth. Come on. No, that's Iron Man, and he obviously creates the technology because he has this workshop. And if you look at the way his father developed the blah 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 blah. Like, all right, all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So they take everything very seriously, um, and you know, obviously. So the Flag Smashers were based on this comic book character called Flag Smasher, who was you know written as in the antithesis of Captain America, where Captain America is all about patriotism and jingoism. Flag Smashers like, oh, we need no borders, and it's ridiculous. And then you know, it's like, oh, he kind of has a point, and oh, we should listen more to the Flag Smashers. Why do they have to take everything from the comics? Like, can't like it? It always feels like there's always some precedent in the comics for everything. And I get that you're a like Marvel <laughs> comic book company, but like, couldn't you just invent like a new thing and be like, Hey, this is just a new thing for this show. Like, it seems like they never do that. Well, I think that they typically, you know, listen, look at the flag smashers, right? I mean, 
if you look at Flag Smasher, the guy from the mm -hmm. comics, this this band of you know uh, mm -hmm. rabble rousers is really different from that, right? It's it's a kernel from the comic, yeah. so. Yeah I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a good, I mean, it's a, good, it's a fair question, but I guess the thing is, and I was never really a comic book person growing up, mm -hmm. but um, there's so much stuff in comic books. Like there's mm -hmm. so many stories. They all, there's, you know, there's whatever, there's yeah. 50 titles and each of the titles has been running for a hundred years. And so it's <laughs> like, well, we might as well just pick and grab the <laughs> coolest stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it's, yeah, I guess it's hard. It's hard to justify inventing something like completely new when you have so much content there to pull yeah. from well it's like but sometimes it doesn't so make stuff. sometimes it doesn't make sense though i think that like you just need someone who's maybe like to be like guys no but like you're saying i guess that that's just not something that happens at well it's like Batroc <laughs> yeah. the leaper right if he wasn't a comic book character mm -hmm. nobody would have been why isn't he leaping more because he's never <laughs> called the leaper in the show wait which I don't even remember which guy this He's is. The French guy. Like, is that it's, the guy at the end? The Fr French okay, the French guy. guy. Okay. Yeah, uh, George, uh, uh, George, I, George Saint Pierre, George, the the MMA fighter who would definitely kill you if you had a chance. I feel like I feel like sometimes you need Cliff's notes for, and I guess that's why you would read the comic books because I get confused in Marvel movies because there's just so many characters, and sometimes it's like I I just can't pull it, put it all together, especially with the shows. There's just sometimes there's just a lot of people to keep track of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, they, I don't know if you know this, but they do have their little Cliff Notes show on Disney mm -hmm. Plus. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think I that's guess specifically I, for that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I would have to watch that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is funny when you when you once you're ingrained in the world, everything kind of makes sense. And then what's funny is you watch the way and I, I think that I give credit to the original Superman from 78 for doing this, where mm -hmm. they take stuff that is just obviously dumb, you know, mm -hmm. the the. And they, and they tweak it so that it's not dumb. You know, yeah. um, the, when Marlon Brando says the words Fortress of Solitude, like Fortress of Solitude, like say it out loud. It's like, yeah. that sounds dumb. <laughs> but when Marlon Brando says it where he sort of, he tosses it off as this ironic, like, well, I guess you'll just stay here in this Fortress of Solitude. Mm -hmm. You know, it yeah. just makes it sound cool. So, and then they yeah. take Batroc. They're not, not going to call him Batroc the Leaper because that's yeah. dumb. But he's Batroc whatever, Mabob. And, you know, maybe you know, they just they, they get rid of the stuff that is silly, but they keep the cool yeah. stuff. Even yeah. Batroc, for example, um, in the comics, he has this goofy headwear that's <laughs> yellow with big black stripes. He looks ridiculous. In the in the uh, in this show, he needed a helmet when he jumped out of the plane to make him stand out from the other guys. So we, we were going to give him a yellow helmet. And then it was actually the VFX guys who suggested, let's give him a yellow helmet with black stripes as an homage to the comic book. And mm -hmm. so stuff like that comes across, yeah. which is pretty, yeah. you know, so yeah. yeah, it's interesting what they keep and what they get rid of. Um, like Bucky, the, the guy's, you know, that, that was named, <laughs> I mean, he was invented in the forties. It's Captain America with his sidekick, Bucky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and now his name is James Barnes, but adds ah, childhood nickname, Bucky, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> or actually the best, the best example I think is, um, when uh, Doctor Strange says to Peter Parker, says like, "Oh, my name's Doctor Strange." He's like, "Oh, we're using our made-up yeah. names." Oh, then I'm yeah. Sorry. yeah. <laughs> like, just yeah. it's always a wink and a nod of like, "This is all silly, yeah. guys." The guy's yeah. name is Doctor Strange. Yeah. Come on, Come yeah. On. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been an amazing conversation. Oh, thanks so much, guys. All right, thanks. Yeah, you all too, right. Dave. Thanks. Take it all easy. Right. So, Dave, we're going to take about a week or so off here for a little summer break, and we're actually going to meet in Disneyland. Just like we won the Super Bowl, except mm -hmm. we didn't win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to, our kids are going to be there with us and our wives, and uh, 
we're gonna we're gonna scream uh, like little kids riding all the rides together. It's gonna be yes. great. Oh yeah. And then we'll come back after that, and we're gonna do, I believe, the future of storytelling. Yes. All right, my friend. So I'll see you in about four days. All right. I am the Tasmanian Devil's unquenchable appetite for souls. I am the one eight seven seven Cars for Kids theme song. There aren't multiple versions. There's only one. No, there are. There are. are there, Dave? I heard. <laughs> also, I don't know if you know who Richard Cheese is. Oh yeah. He does. He does a cover of it, which we nice. discovered yesterday. <laughs> Anyway, we are the Planet of the Meerkats. And thanks for joining us today. 1877 Cars for Kids. K A R S Cars for Kids. 1877 Cars for Kids. Donate your car today. Boom, 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 boom. You just broke a, you just broke a promise there, big guy. <laughs> you can't believe anything I say, Dave. <laughs> Planet of the Meerkats is produced by Neil Fries and David Garrison, and our theme music is by Tawny Frogmouth.